Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. But I think that they bring out a softness in one another. And that dynamic was really interesting to play around with in those meetings because there'd be moments of complete softness and, and vulnerability and you think maybe there is a spark between them that's very strange. And then they'd hit a wall and that spike would come out and, and it would feel spiky and edgy and uncomfortable again. And it was really interesting to play around with. Welcome back to West of Westeros, Entertainment Weekly's Game of Thrones podcast, where we cover all corners of the Game of Thrones cinematic universe, but especially House of the Dragon, which is currently airing on HBO and streaming on HBO Max. I'm Nick Romano, a senior writer here at EW, and I'm joined each week by my fantastic co-host, Lauren Morgan. Lauren, are you ready to dive into another episode of this Targaryen saga that we're going on? Dracarys, baby, let's get going. So. <laughs> <laughs> so Lauren, before we get into the nitty gritty of episode two, we have some news this week. HBO has officially renewed House of the Dragon for season two. This was just days after reporting that the premiere episode marked the biggest series premiere in HBO history. According to the network, just about 10 million viewers, including those on the HBO Max streaming platform, watched the first episode. HBO also states that by Friday, that number had surpassed 20 million viewers combined across linear TV watching, on demand, and HBO Max platforms. This seems like a pretty good sign, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was, you know, when they announced the first batch of the ratings, I was like, that's a huge number. And I I wasn't really surprised when they announced the renewal, because I was like, yeah, of course, you know, and also they put so much money into this production and all this kind of stuff. It would be just stupid for them to be like, no, we're not going to do a season two. Obviously, there's an audience for it. And then also when you see what the numbers were over the course of the week, and that there's like an additional 11 million, that's a big chunk of people to be watching this show. So totally not surprised whatsoever by this whole thing. Yeah, I also feel like it's definitely happy news for anyone who's been following along with all the drama with the Warner Brothers Discovery merger and Batgirl, Wonder Twins, all of these TV and movie projects getting canceled, executives getting laid off. It seems like at least HBO is in the Game of Thrones game for a while. I mean, do you think this is also a good sign for the other Game of Thrones spinoffs that are kind of currently in development? Yeah, I'm probably I'm sure someone has probably called Kit Harrington and being like, when would you like to film? Like, wh- when can we set this production up? So I'm pretty sure they're like full steam ahead. And I'm sure George R. R. Martin is absolutely delighted as well, I would assume. Because there was a question about whether Game of Thrones like a one shot phenomenon, or is this a world people want to see more of? And I think those numbers prove that yeah, people do are interested in seeing more of Westeros. And there is a full and complicated history for them to explore. So I, I was not, you know, not surprised. <laughs> least by this whole thing. But yeah, I'm pretty sure someone has called Kit Harrington several times this week. Like, 
Let's go. Come on, John. What are we doing? What are we doing? (laughs) Oh, that definitely happened. I'm sure. (laughs) I'm also curious to see if the same audience will return for episode two, episode three, how that number is going to change, either grow or dwindle as the season goes on. Hopefully it grows. We'll see. One thing that this whole renewal announcement reminded me of is when I was on the red carpet for the LA premiere of House of the Dragon in July, I spoke with Miguel Sapochnik really quickly, and he confirmed something that had originally been reported by The Hollywood Reporter, which was that should this show go on for season after season after season, House of the Dragon could really become a Targaryen anthology series, pinpointing different stories throughout the history of Westeros. The quote that he gave was, quote, we've chosen a story that's almost like Star Wars Episode Four. It's the new hope. We can go backwards. We can go forwards. There's a lot of opportunities there. Lauren, are there any like specific Targaryen stories for you as a fan of Game of Thrones that you would love to see? House of the Dragon tell in the future? I think the bigger question would be like, which ones wouldn't I want to see? Because I basically want to see all of them. <laughs> but I, I mean, I know they've talked about like, you know, doing Aegon the Conqueror and that. There's, I mean, when you kind of move forward, I've always been fascinated by Rhaegar Targaryen and like the Turin, Tourney of Hall and Robert's Rebellion and stuff like that. So I'd be fascinated to see that too. In Fire and Blood specifically, I thought the reign of Jaehaerys and Queen Alysanne, I thought that was like a fascinating little period because she was really and I think she's a super fascinating character she was really like a co-ruler with him and they might reference it but like she was pissed when Rhaenys got passed over for heir because she'd basically been doing all the hard work of ruling this kingdom as well so uh, I'm fascinated by her I think she's a really fascinating character so I'd be up for her are there any ones that you specifically want to see? I mean I would love to see an Egg on the Conqueror series if only to like kind of explore the world of old Valyria and seeing that kind of at the height before it kind of came crumbling down. From an executive standpoint, I think the Mad King, that whole art, makes a whole lot of sense because then you can bring in familiar characters that we've known from the original Game of Thrones, younger versions of them into incorporate into this series. And then we could even see like a young Danny before she has to like flee King's Landing after the sacking. Yeah. I mean, I think especially like, you know, there's the whole Lyanna and Rhaegar, but then there's Robert and then there's the fact that like Cersei was wanted to marry Rhaegar and then she kind of got turned down and that's kind of what turned Tywin against the Mad King and all this kind of stuff. So like that is a juicy, juicy series of plot lines. So that was like one of the ones that I would always love to see. But like, you know, there's so many other aspects. I know they're doing Duncan Egg and you kind of cross into some of the Targaryens, obviously Egg. It's such a rich history that I think the idea of this turning into an anthology series is really interesting. But before that can even happen, season one has to keep with the strong ratings and finish this first story, The Dance of the Dragons, that they started in episode one. So let's dig into it. So typically, for anyone listening at home, Lauren and I host this podcast with a rotating roster of guest hosts. This week, it's just us. We're going to be digging into everything, but the ground rules remain the same. We want to be respectful of spoilers. So in this first portion of the pod, we will be talking about House of the Dragon from a show perspective, meaning anything that has already aired up to this point, anything that has been reported on in the press is fair game to talk about. Then we're going to pivot a bit later to a more spoilery discussion to talk about the show in relation to Martin's books. And then the 
the final section will be dedicated to an interview with a member of the cast and crew of House of the Dragon. This week, we're joined by Emily Carey, who plays young Alicent Hightower on the series. So let's dig into all of this. Let's talk about this big reveal that you mentioned, because yes, it's been sort of my, you know, on the front of my mind for the whole time. I mean, I think anybody who's read the book will be like, why is this a spoiler? Why can't we talk about it? Because you can't really talk about the Dance of the Dragon, which House of the Dragon chronicles without mentioning the fact that Alison Hightower, Rhaenyra's Targaryen's best friend, ends up marrying her father and becoming her stepmother. Yes. <laughs> and it's their union. Very complicated feelings there, you know. Very complex. And it's that union that gives birth to Aegon the Second Targaryen, who is the other major player in sort of this civil war that's looming in the future over the question of succession. I mean, Lauren, did you think, I mean, the way that HBO was kind of being like, don't talk about this, this is a big spoiler. Were you kind of surprised that this came so early in season one? I was really glad because I hate when shows just like hide obvious information. It's like one of those things where, you know, the whole audience knows what you're talking about and the show's just like beating around the bush. I was just like, let's just establish this so we can understand who is who on the on the, the game board. And, you know, and start to to understand how this conflict comes about. So I was kind of glad that it just kind of got it over with. You know, it's really interesting, I think, to see, you know, Patty Considine dealing with the relationship between Alicent and Viserys. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about Lena later on about his second potential bride. And just how, you know, there is an obvious age difference between these two people. Not as much as there was with him and Lena. But it, it was kind of interesting where you see why Viserys made the decision he did, even if I don't think it was the wisest decision for him to make. But yeah, I'm really just glad that they just got it over with. And we we now know who Viserys is going to marry. So let's uh, reorient ourselves around where we are in episode two at the beginning, because we knew a lot of time jumps were coming. There was already a time jump between the preface and the start of episode one. We got another one. We're now half a year, we're told, after the events of episode one. Viserys has been pressured to pick a new wife and make more babies, strengthen his line. Instead of choosing Lena Valarian, which was who many people, including... You know, Lord Corliss and Rhaenys Targaryen hoped he would pick. You know, he instead chose the young woman who's been consoling him in his time of grief for all these months, which is Alicent. And that was definitely put into motion by Otto, we now know, who's kind of becoming more, I don't know if it's malevolent, but definitely more scheming. He's a, a lot more of an active schemer in episode two. Yeah, he's a lot, definitely a lot more like Machiavellian about, like he has his eyes on the prize. And even when when he chides Alicent for biting her nails and stuff like that, I think he knows exactly who he wants Viserys to marry. And in some respects, it seems like Viserys is a little dumb to not sort of see the machinations going on. I mean, it's like he understands the machinations. Corliss's are so, and, and Rhaenys's uh, are so sort of obvious and bold that he sees those, but he doesn't sort of notice that Otto is basically doing the same thing to him. So I think that was kind of interesting that, you know, he doesn't sort of recognize that he's being manipulated on the other side. He just, you know, is trying to avoid being manipulated by Corliss. Though, I mean, it is cringe-inducing to the idea of him marrying a 12-year-old is like, ah, but, you know. Yeah. I think what I find so fascinating about the the story in House of the Dragon so far kind of goes back to, you know, a core 
thing, a core element about the Targaryen and their line in general, which is the fact that in terms of a biological incestuous standpoint, the previous generation has a tremendous impact, like a direct impact on the next generation and the next generation. And the way that this story is playing out, it's really interesting tragic, but interesting to see all of this pressure and all of this anxiety Otto is putting on his child, Allison, and the ways it's affecting her, but also I'm interested in when Olivia Cook takes over the role later on in the series. Is she going to be doing the kind of same things to her children as her father did to her? And and the same, you know, note, you know, like for Rhaenyra, because you know, she's constantly trying to prove herself to her father, Viserys. He's constantly you know, I think Otto had a line and during the small council after Rhaenyra gave that suggestion about sending the dragon riders to Dragonstone to deal with Damon. Otto's like, uh, maybe we find somewhere else where her skills are better served. Yeah, we're gonna kick her over to pick in the King's Guard. And and I thought that was kind of interesting because it's like Viserys did name her heir to the Iron Throne. And that was one the scene where I was like, if she was male, would he have actually sort of listened to what she said? Because she did sort of make more sense. Or like, you know, when Corliss was like, oh, well, the princess has some ideas here. And Viserys maybe should have listened to her, but he just kind of, you know, kind of discounted her idea. Whereas perhaps a male heir would have been like, well, look at this this young prince, he's already trying to be a ruler, you know, great for him, where she just got to go pick the Kingsguard. And, you know, we have to talk about Kristen Cole, who- The hottie uh, with the body this season. (laughs) (laughs) He, uh, you know, just keep an eye on Kristen. I won't say more uh, in this section, but, you know, people should just keep an eye on him because he is an important player to come. But yeah, and and, and I thought that that scene where she was picking him and the fact that she had to get on like the little Apple box to like see over, I thought that was really funny. But that she was just like, yeah, I'm I'm just going to go with a hottie. Sorry, guys. I don't care if you're a Malister or whatever, you know. And and I thought I was like, that was pretty relatable. (laughs) Like, you know, what teenage girl would not pick that dude for her sworn sword? Yeah, before we kind of move on to some other topics, I think for me personally, I don't know, when I I think about sort of the reveal of Allison getting engaged to Viserys and Rhaenyra's reaction to it, I almost wish we had more intimate moments between Rhaenyra and Alicent. I mean, we we're, we know they're best friends. We know that. But in terms of sort of the emotional impact of this cinematic storytelling, I don't know. It, it didn't really fully do it for me at the end. I think one thing that they probably should have established a little bit more was a moment where Alicent could have sent mention that she's been spending time with the king. And pointedly chose not to like she said it to the king himself but if you could see the very calculated you know move of not telling Rhaenyra that she had been spending time with her father or or just see like because that's really kind of like the first little betrayal is that basically Allison is all of a sudden going to be her stepmother and supposedly they're such great friends and Allison hasn't confided in her at all about what her father's been pushing or anything. So, you know, Renera really thinks that Lena is going to become her stepmother because she's seen the the whole thing, the whole courting. And, you know, she's seen her father walking around with 
the 12 year old, which looked, you know, completely uh, ridiculous. And I have to give Patty Considine credit because he looked so uncomfortable in that as well, that scene as, as he should have. But like, you know, she's expecting her father to marry someone completely different. And so she just gets completely gobsmacked that it's Allison because, you know, supposedly they're so close. And Allison has this sort of huge secret that she basically keeps from her and things kind of go downhill from there because people are keeping secrets here. And, you know, maybe if Allison had told her earlier and if, you know, she understood that Allison could be the person her mother's married, maybe she wouldn't be so opposed to it. Maybe she would have welcomed it a little bit more. So it's like kind of just an interesting thing to th- think about. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is like a major moment, right? I mean, in that first meeting between Allison and Viserys in episode two, I believe it's the first meeting, he tells her, don't tell Rhaenyra that we're meeting. And it's such, I mean, this is Allison's king. Yeah. If she goes against him and tells Rhaenyra, that's technically, is it treason? Refusing to, you know, to obey the orders of your king. Yeah. Which is a crazy thing for an 18-year-old to have to think about on top of all this pressure from her family, specifically her father, to make this union kind of happen. Yeah. But all of that is really internalized in this episode. And I really, I don't know, I'm not a filmmaker, so... (laughs) (laughs) But I do agree with you that I think that it it could have been stronger. But I did think one interesting thing was when they were in the Sept of Baelor and they were praying, I think they were praying in front of the, the statue of the mother, that you could really see that Alicent is more religious than Renera is, even though Renera is like the protector of the faith or whatever it is. And I think that aspect of Alicent, that she is tries to be more moral and, you know, this is what this up to say. And, and like, I think that is a key thing that's going to come into play with that as well, because I think she thinks of herself as kind of more moral than Rhaenyra is. And I think that's kind of, I thought that scene was kind of interesting because I think, I mean, it was subtle, but I thought it's sort of establishing the difference where it's like Rhaenyra, Rhaenyra doesn't even know how to pray, you know, and as a lapsed Catholic, I'm, I sort of, <laughs> I sort of related to her on that thing, you know. And a, ob- another obvious, you know, big element slash repercussion from this union between Allison of Cyrus is the fact that Corliss is now extremely pissed off. In the context of the show, this is the second time that House Valarian has been spurned by the Targaryen crown. But in the books, I think it's like really three because during the descriptions for the Great Council of Harrenhal, which was the event that ended up choosing Viserys to become king in the first place, Laenor, a Corlys's son, was put forth by House Valarian as a potential claimant to the Iron Throne. But his claim wasn't really taken very seriously. So if you think about it in that sense, already Laenor... Lanor has been passed over. Rhaenys was passed over for the crown. And now, and now the daughter. So this is, I don't know, third time's the charm. And and the thing is, he's, and Corlys is so powerful. I don't know if viewers understand it, but where his seat is, is Driftmark, which is very close to Dragonstone. It's it's sort of the entrance to the Blackwater Bay, a hugely important strategic point. And, you know, he's been the lord of the Driftmark for ages at this point and he's an extremely competent man you know he's called the sea snake for a very good reason and so it's like you know he he is like the most important man and and i thought that was interesting where it was like a proud man does not like to look up you know he still sort of can't stand that viserys is on the throne especially since his wife should really be on the throne and his son should be the prince of dragonstone and all that stuff so it's kind of like i think it's kind of like a fascinating dynamic And, and but you do think about like 
with the the thing with Elena is if she was just a few years older, would Viserys have been like, well, this makes sense. It was just like, she was just absurdly young. And I know girls got married off at 12 and 14 constantly in this in this world. And the thing is, in the book, Viserys, I think, is supposed to be like 30 years old at, at this point. And Patty Con's nine is 48. So like there is just visually, he just looks a much older man where it's like if he was 29 years old, it might not be. I mean, it would it would be gross, but not quite yeah. so. We joked about this off the podcast, but Viserys was like, ew, 12 years old, too young, but 18, just right. Oh That's God. perfect. <laughs> but it's just like, you know, if Lena was like, you know, if she was like 16, 17, would Viserys have been like, yes, it is probably wise that I, you know, seal the rift between these two extremely powerful houses. Where it's like, you know, Hightower is a powerful house, but it's not Corliss's and, and Renice's house. It's not the house of the queen that never was so that's it's i mean it was kind of really i understand viserys like why he chose the way he did but it was kind of dumb in the long run when you think about it like just from a tactical perspective so the episode ends with corliss now completely pissed off by this decision recruiting prince damon to join his cause and wage this illegal war in the stepstone to defeat the crab feeder and reclaim his shipping lanes. Lots of shipping lanes. The shipping lanes discussion has returned. But it it seems obvious. I mean, the obvious implication of this is that, you know, just like it is in the books, this show is going to be leading up to what is called the Battle of the Stepstones. Lauren, what is the Battle of the Stepstones? Why is it so significant for this time period in Westeros? And how did we get to this point? Okay, so let me explain. I'm assuming most of our our listeners probably have not spent time looking at the maps between Westeros and Essos. The Stepstones is kind of a conglomeration of tiny islands Uh, towards the south. It's between like the narrow sea that separates Westeros and Essos and the summer sea, which is between like Dorne. Basically, whoever controls that controls trade really between Essos and Westeros because all of the stuff that comes from like the southern part of Essos and Karth and all that kind of stuff, that would come up through the Stepstones. You're talking about spices and silks and all this kind of stuff. And so... The battle for the Stepstones is the Triarchy is basically kind of taken over the Stepstones. And in the books, it was initially they had kind of cleared it of the pirates and it wasn't too bad. But then they started getting really greedy. They started kidnapping women and they were charging exorbitant amounts in taxes. And it was just becoming a a really huge problem. And this is where, you know, Lord uh, Valarian, who is master of ships, and he's made all of his money from shipping and trade and stuff like that. So this is hitting him in the pocketbook. And so Corliss really needs this to be taken care of because it is, it is, it's hurting his bottom line. And so this is where he's like, he wants to clear out the sort of triarchy and the crab feeder from the stepstones. And Viserys isn't really too concerned about it. He's just like, yeah, I'm not going to declare a war for this right now. And Corliss just thinks this is another point to Viserys's weakness. But he's got Damon, who's bored and gotten kicked out of Dragonstone. So <laughs> he's looking for something to do. That's sort of short version of what the battle for the Stepstones will be about. Yeah. And just for you know anyone who hasn't read the stories told in George R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood, which the show is based on, the Triarchy, that is a un- an alliance of three cities of the Free Cities. Yeah. So it's Tarosh, Lys, and Mir. And you might have, you guys might remember this from when 
Daenerys was in Essos, Dario Naharis was from Tyrosh, and there's been various other characters from these specific cities. But like, there's these are just kind of like three specific cities in Essos who have banded together to become the Triarchy, much to the aggravation of some of the other cities in Essos, but... You know, that's basically what the triarchy is. So when Viserys on the show kind of tells Corlys that, you know, the free cities are really the ones behind the crab feeder and everything going on with the Stepstones currently, he means it literally because the triarchy are the free cities. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It, it does get into like some nitty gritty with, you know, as we joked about last week, it, it does feel a little bit like trade federations and taxes and the phantom menace but this is an important thing i mean it's the a tale as old as time you mess with someone's coin you know you get the sword okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you just think about like the crevies they're kind of like the gray joys of the other side of the coast because the gray joys are bedeviling the western side and this group is bedeviling the eastern side that's a kind of an easier way to think about There was one um, small detail that I wanted to point out in this meeting of the mind between Corliss and Damon. The hilt of Damon's sword in this scene is very similar to the hilt of Corliss's sword. And Corliss's sword, if you look on the photos from EW's cover shoot for House of the Dragon, all the portraits, the hilt of Corliss's sword is an open mollusk with like a little pearl inside. And so I love that kind of visual connection between these two characters as they are planning an alliance kind of together. But I also love the fact that, you know, as soon as Corliss starts dissing Viserys, Damon's like, I can say whatever I want about my brother. You can. Which I love. (laughs) That that did feel like a very sibling kind of thing because I do have a sister and I will make fun of my sister as much, but (laughs) allow other people to make fun of my sister. So I think you have siblings as well. So it is just like you keep their names out of your mouth, you know? So I thought Damon was being very, uh, very kind of the very naughty sibling the whole time and we can talk about his little stunt around dragonstone and the dragon egg as well but yeah i i damon i just find him just delightfully delightfully naughty yeah and it gets to a, a core aspect of his character like even though he's technically a claimant to the iron throne who's been disinherited by his brother he really doesn't have a lot of aspirations for the throne all of his actions are reactions or like you know ways to like piss off his brother it's all goes back to his brother he's just basically like acting like a younger sibling and just trying to get the attention of his older sibling and i'm a younger sibling so i also understand that dynamic and it's like almost everything he does he's just trying to get viserys's goat so i think this is a very believable sibling relationship and i think though it's interesting though that damon is considered kind of one of the slightly nuttier Targaryens, but he really does feel affection for Viserys and I think also for Rhaenyra. Like he you can tell he definitely cares about them both, even if his own ambitions are in direct opposition to them. So I think that does make a sort of fascinating dynamic between the three of them is that you can tell he's not going to kill these people. He's just going to be bothersome towards them. So I think that's kind of an interesting dynamic. We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, we're going to pivot to the book spoiler segment of the podcast and address all things Damon Targaryen. Stay tuned. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so Lauren, let's dig into this Damon arc a little bit more thoroughly. We found out that in this half-year time jump between episode one and episode two, Damon did not go back to the Vale and be with his wife as Viserys, you know, commanded him to do. Surprise, surprise. Instead, he used an army of his gold cloaks to take over Dragonstone, which is the ancestral seat of House Targaryen in Westeros. And not only that, he's named himself Prince of Dragonstone. He announced plans to make Masaria his second wife, and he stole a dragon egg from King's Landing to place in the cradle of their future son. On top of that, it's the same egg that Rhaenyra had once picked for her now dead brother, Balon. A lot's going on in there. He is really being provoking. He is really trying to get them, but... Yeah, but before we get into kind of specifics of this plot point, we return to Dragonstone. You know, we saw it in the original Game of Thrones after Amelia Clark's Daenerys Targaryen finally stepped foot <laughs> on Westerosi soil. But it's a different fortress. You know, it's built into an active... Well, it's built into a volcano. At the time of Game of Thrones, that volcano was not active. But here, during the time of House of the Dragon, it very much is. There's torches and smoke, volcano fumes kind of all over the place. It's very much a alive and thriving at this time period. Lauren, were there any kind of specific details about this version of Dragonstone that you really liked? I mean, they think that, like, you know, there's always the bridges that kind of go up to Dragonstone, and I I do remember, like, when John and Sir Davos were having, like, meetings there and that kind of stuff. I mean, I love the whole design of Dragonstone. I think it just speaks so much to like the Targaryen aesthetic, even more so than the Red Keep. And this is where the heir to the Iron Throne would always traditionally live while the the king would be living in the Red Keep. And you see this is, you know, throughout the rest of Westeros history is that when you're declared the Prince of Dragonstone or the, you know, or the Princess of Dragonstone, Dragonstone becomes your seat. This is where you live until you ascend the Iron Throne. So for Daemon to take what is Rhaenyra's, this is basically her castle. He he basically steals her castle. And, you know, and I just like love that, like that kind of bridge and that the face off that they had between, you know, Damon shows up with his forces, which are the gold cloaks. And then Otto, Otto shows up, which is like, honestly, if you're going to have someone come and face Damon, Otto is not the person I would send. <laughs> like, literally, I was just like, Otto is very lucky that he did not decide to, you know, say Dracarys and toasts him. But, you know, so I thought that was a great thing. And the thing is, you know, Rhaenyra, uh, initially, when they were talking about what he had been up to in the small council, she was like, we have dragons, go do that. You know, we could go confront him. And she was just like, extremely pissed that he took her brother's egg. And this is the egg of the dragon dream file, which we can talk about that dragon specifically has some interesting history that might connect to Daenerys. And I just love the scene. It starts out as a conflict with just between Damon's group and then Otto's group. And then, of course, Caraxes shows up. 
And he's a big dragon at this point. And then who do we see emerging out of the smoke? And I loved this shot where the clouds just kind of part it. And then all of a sudden, Rhaenyra just popped out on Cyrax. It was interesting, though, when you saw the long shot where you're like, oh, Caraxes is still a lot bigger than Cyrax. And so if Caraxes really wanted to kill Cyrax, I don't think it would have been that hard, you know difficult. And I loved Rhaenyra in this scene where she just haughtily gets off of her dragon in her little march up and like she's like kind of swinging her shoulders and she kind of knows she's a badass and, you know, just goes straight up and starts speaking Valerian to her uncle. And, and she is really the only person at that point who could get him to back down, like even more so than Viserys. And, and you could tell he was just kind of whiny that Viserys didn't show up, but you could tell that, you know, this is the only person who could have gotten that egg back from Damon? I thought it was so cool. My favorite part was that Rhaenyra's outfit when she emerges out of her smoke is so rem- reminiscent of Amelia Clark's Daenerys outfit in the final season of Game of Thrones. I have, you know, one of those snapback kind of reactions was, wait, no, Daenerys isn't alive right now. No, this <laughs> can't be her. Yeah, that was definitely, we are calling back, you know, we're calling forward to Daenerys because that whole, just seeing that young woman flying with the hair, the silver hair behind it was like, that was totally a Daenerys kind of stunt. They're, they're all stunt queens and Daenerys comes from a long line of stunt queens. So that was definitely, I thought that, but I I really did like that conflict. And I, you know, I thought that outside of just the spectacle of it, but I I do think it was really well written from a, a standpoint of who all these people are. And even though she did get in trouble with it from it, but like, you know, she was like, yeah, I mean, I'm the only person who could have prevented that. I don't think you really wanted your brother dead, dad. Can we talk about this accent? This is a crazy accent. I don't know what it is. I can't place any of it. Yeah, this accent is banana. I can't figure out what it's supposed to be. I know it's just kind of supposed to be kind of like an Essos kind of thing. It is just a super crazy accent. <laughs> like, And it's just like, it's very hard to pay attention to what she's saying. And like, I think like Mazara could be an interesting character, but it's just like the delivery of it is totally like, I cannot pay attention to anything that is coming out of your mouth right now, just because of this wacky accent that is that you have chosen to do. Yeah, and I love the actress who plays Masaria, um, Sonoyo Mizuno. I realized the other day after my like umpteenth rewatch of Crazy Rich Asians that she's in that movie too. And she's so talented, but this accent just like really took me out of the scene. And I mean, look, it's a challenge that I think our Darren, our guest host last week mentioned it then, but you know, the show has this added challenge that the books didn't, which is they have to figure out how all of these different dialects sound. And no matter what accent you do to the, you know, the human ear, it's going to wind up sounding like some combination of an accent that actually exists obviously the targaryens sound british because most of them are being played by british actors and like ned stark sounded kind of northern like northern because sean bean has a specifically northern accent of you know northern northern english accent so it is just kind of like you know the actors that are playing them are going to affect whatever role this is but this seemed like a definite choice yeah so I want to now get into something that you brought up earlier, which is Dreamfire, this kind of name drop. I think, you know, whenever we get to meet a new dragon, I'm, I'm all for it, even though we haven't formally met Dreamfire in this episode. 
but the name is mentioned. Lauren, what is significant about this dragon? Yeah, I thought that was really interesting when they name-checked Dreamfire specifically. This is a dragon that does show up in Fire and Blood. I believe she was initially read a road by Raina Targaryen. And the thing is that's very interesting about Dreamfire, though, is and she will be written by another writer later on, is that Dreamfire was very, I guess, fertile for a dragon. She was laying clutches of eggs everywhere. And there is a suggestion, we've always, like, I've always particularly wondered, where did Daenerys' eggs come from? What dragon did the, her eggs come from? Because her, you know, they wound up in Pentos, Illyrio Mapatis gave them to Daenerys when she was born. Specifically, though, in the books, Dreamfire and her writer, like, three of her eggs were stolen, and they were never found, but they were suspected to go to Pentos which is where Daenerys's eggs showed up. So I was, I have always sort of thought to myself that Dreamfire was the mother, I guess, of Drogon and Viserion and Rhaegal. So like when they specifically mentioned Dreamfire here, I was kind of like, that just kind of was interesting to me. And, you know, traditionally with the Targaryens, when they had a new baby, they would put, take an egg and put it in the cradle with the baby so that, you know, when that egg hatched, that that would become the dragon for that Targaryen. Sometimes the eggs didn't hatch, or sometimes, you know, they wound up becoming riders of a dragon that already existed, like Viserys did with Valerian the Black Dread. So I thought that was kind of like an interesting thing. Like, I'm like, are we going to get like a final confirmation that Dreamfire's eggs are the ones that gave birth to Daenerys's dragons? This is my own little personal theory. It popped out and I was just thinking about it. So the other interesting thing, just to talk about another dragon, is that they mentioned Vagar. Vagar was one of the dragons from the original Conquest, who was written by Aegon the Conqueror's sister, Visenya, and who is still alive at this point. And Vagar got mentioned during the conversation between Viserys and Lena. And Lena was wondering where Vagar was, which is interesting because at this point in the book, Lena is actually Vagar's rider. You know, their dragon bond has been formed. And so she becomes Vagar's rider. So that's my little thing on Dreamfire. Did that pop out to you? Like, what did you think about that? You know, it didn't pop out to me, but like now hearing you talk about it, I really love this theory because there have been some revelations on House of the Dragon already. One is that the phrase A Song of Ice and Fire, which is the name of George R.R. Martin's Game of Thrones book series that started this whole thing. A Song of Ice and Fire is the vision that Aegon the Conqueror once had that made him want to come over to Westeros. So I kind of love this theory because if all three of Danny's dragons stem from Dreamfire, I mean, think of the name dream of fire i just love how this is all coming together (laughs) (laughs) but you also mentioned vagar and that was definitely one of the significant changes to the story from the books in the show that i kind of wanted to talk about something that miguel sapochnik told me about how dragons work in this world which is the fact that dragons never stop growing That's part of their mythology for this show. And so if dragons aren't killed by other means, either, you know, by other dragons or dragon slayers, that kind of thing, they die because they basically get cancer and grow too big to sustain themselves. So like their skin will start flaking off of them in older age. They'll break their bones every time they try to land because they're just, they can't sustain their own weight. So I, that kind of came to mind when Viserys was talking to Lena about the death of Balerion, the Black Dread, because we don't really know yet, right? How that dragon died, but I'm, I'm assuming it got cancer and just got too big. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it was just old age. It was just enormous. It's like when you see that skull at, like in the bottom of the Red Keep and you're like, that was a big dragon, you know? And you see like these other dragons, you're like, that's a big dragon, but it's not as big as that one. And I think we were, there was a shot in the trailer where we, which we were arguing whether it was Vagar later that we saw this week. And I was like, that's a pretty big dragon. So I would assume that's probably Vagar. But yeah, I'm like super fascinated by all of the dragon stuff and the lore behind that and how each Targaryen becomes like a dragon can have multiple riders, but a Targaryen can only have one dragon. So I think that's kind of an interesting. And I I would just like imagine also for Lena riding Vagar, the biggest dragon that we're going to be seeing on the show. (laughs) Like, hey, bitches. You know, you might not have made my mom queen, but guess who's riding Vagar? Another big book to show change that I wanted to talk about is, or I wanted to mention, is that in Fire and Blood, this Targaryen history states that Masaria was pregnant at this time when Daemon is at Dragonstone, and that she only lost the baby on a dangerous return trip home back to Lys in the Free Cities. The show is kind of correcting this historical record. Masaria being pregnant was only something that Daemon told his brother to piss him off, essentially, but I love how that still kind of made the historical record that we read about in Martin's Fire and Blood. In the book, there's also no word about Rhaenyra being involved in this sort of Dragonstone dispute at all, or that she was there riding Syrax. You also, you mentioned the Lena Valarian one. Oh, and then another thing that I kind of thought about was just like, you know, the book states that when word of Viserys' engagement to Alicent gets back to Corliss. Corliss is at Driftmark when he hears about it. But the show is presenting him at this small council on the show. Ryan and Miguel have kind of talked about the show being a companion to the books in a lot of ways, and they hope it's going to be the objective account and not the subjective account of the Dance of the Dragons. So I, I, it's just like, these are like fun things that I'm kind of like keeping track of, be like, oh, are they rewriting history here completely? Or are they kind of... Is this just the real history? Yeah. I mean, how do you feel about that aspect of House of the Dragon so far with all of the things that they are kind of talking about that are mentioned in the books. I think it's pretty fascinating. And I did mention last week that I have seen like all six episodes that have been released, you know, to the press. And so there were definitely changes where it's like they finally clarify what exactly happened between a couple of characters. But I think the choice to like, obviously the choice to have Corliss in the room when Viserys like makes this announcement, obviously that's far more dramatic than, you know, him reading a raven from Kings. I mean, that is far, you know, far more dramatic. So I totally understand why they, they went with that decision. But yeah, I'm kind of been like sort of fascinated by how they, the whole thing with like Maseria being pregnant in the book and then her being like, no, I made sure I could never ever be pregnant, which considering what her trade was, that probably wasn't a, a mark of practicality on her part. So I thought that was sort of uh, fascinating and like and how Damon had just kind of lied about it. It's like, didn't you think people would notice if there was never a, a babe? Like, you know, and that kind of stuff. So I, I, the, I, I, so far I'm really enjoying like when they make the changes and how that sort of reflects back on the book. And, you know, and as, as we said before, Fire and Blood is an Archmaester trying to piece together what the actual history of this is. So they're using a Septon's, Septon's Eustace, I think, and then the 
full mushroom, you know, both of their things. So it's sort of the truth is seems to be in right in between both of those recordings. So I think that's kind of like a fascinating thing so far. And I've, I've enjoyed the choices that the show has made when they decide to clarify something, you know, there was some mystery around it in the book. How do you think about that? I am really fascinated by it. And I'm just kind of keeping a running tab of everything that I that kind of stands out to me. I was wondering if you think, like, are we going to get a mushroom appearance in House of the Dragon? Because this is a character who's like supposedly, or he claims to have been like... All over the place. You all know? over the... Yeah, everyone tells him everything because he's a little person and he kind of took that to his advantage, supposedly. We don't know how much he's lying about. Yeah, there is a character that is in one scene. I can't remember if it's the next episode or the one after that where it's like someone who's just playing a lute or something for the entertainment of Rhaenyra. And I was just like, is that supposed to be Mushroom? But, I, you know, like, I haven't seen really any confirmed evidence of Mushroom yet. So maybe Mushroom didn't really exist. And it was this was just really the perspective of Otto Hightower, who was writing under an, an anonymous name or something like that. Like, Oh, interesting. I love that theory. Yeah, like, you know, maybe the Kingsguard just knew some juicy gossip and decided to pretend they were passed this history down that wasn't really the history here is written by men and you know the truth is whatever they decide the truth is so yeah that's true as much as in our own history is like you know whoever writes the history sort of controls how it's remembered that's and i think that's sort of similar this way as well were there any fun easter eggs hints to the larger game of thrones universe sigils or anything like that that stood out to you in episode two that biggest one i think was like the Dreamfire name check because it was like to me that was kind of like is are we gonna bring this dragon up again like i know we're gonna see a lot more dragons but you know that was just one of those things where i was like why are they mentioning Dreamfire specifically Dreamfire is not really a dragon that's been talked about at all really within the series or i think within game of thrones at all i can't really recall dreamfire had ever been mentioned so that was like the one that i specifically thought of the most oh there was one thing when they were talking about the second sons at the end with corliss and damon and so that just reminded me the, the second sons company in essos so like that was like when they said second sons that's that sort of popped out at me too but like was there anything that really popped out for you the Iron Islands name check only because Darren was bemoaning the lack of Greyjoys on House of the Dragon last week. Thank God. <laughs> I know you're not you're not a big fan of the Greyjoys. I know we have people on staff who are big fans of the Greyjoys. And and Theon was you know, he he died nobly in the end. So I will give it for Theon. But most of the time the Greyjoys was like, Oh, goddamn Greyjoys. It's like my least favorite family. I was also trying to make out all of the house sigils, um, and that scene where Rhaenyra has to pick the new Knight of the King's Guard. I believe the house sigils are House Karen, House Malister, House Tarly. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this one. House Krakenhall, the the one with the boar sigil. And then I think maybe the other one with the birds it was House Aaron. I was trying to like dissect the blue bird colors against the whites. Don't quote me on that, but could be. <laughs> A small detail that I picked up on, which I kind of loved, was Rhaenyra was wearing the Valyrian seal necklace that Damon gave her in that first small council scene before she's banished to go pick a new knight of the king's guard but then later on during her private dinner with her father after like they've been talking about how Damon has kind of taken over the dragonstone she's not wearing it 
So I, I don't know. It's just like a very small detail. I, I love small details like that, where it still at the end of the day kind of shows character and shows the mindset of where everybody is. And then I think she brings the necklace back sort of later on in the episode after they've kind of reconciled. But something that I can't wait to see more of is Corliss Valarian's chambers at Driftmark. Because I, I spoke with Steve Toussaint, who plays Corliss, for all of our, you know, House of the Dragon reporting so far. And he mentioned that even though the show doesn't really get into Corliss's past too much, he, as an actor, kind of form worked with Ryan and Miguel to kind of form the stories behind all of these artifacts that are kind of all around Driftmark. And so that when he, as an actor, is kind of walking by that, he'll see something and take note and know the significance behind that. Because all of these artifacts are taken from a famous voyage that Corliss went on in his youth. And we saw a couple of them in this episode. We saw the skull of this deep sea kind of toothed fish thing. It reminded me of the Finding Nemo one with like the the light kind of dangling oh, over its head. Yeah, and then we also get a glimpse of sort of a, a bust of a statue with all this coral, this dried out coral kind of growing all over it. I was like, that is fascinating. I love production design. I love costume design and that kind of stuff. So I love to see the detail that the the artists behind the show really put into it because it makes it so lived in. And so and I just love to see the artistry that they do and that the, all the crafts people do, because it's like, you know, the the actors get the attention, the showrunners and this kind of stuff. But it really is like the whole production team really does make this this whole show sort of come alive. And no matter what you could fault Game of Thrones for, you can always just say the set artistry was extraordinarily high, especially for television. I think it's pretty phenomenal. And I think there are some scenes later on in the season at Driftmark. It looks kind of different than almost any other, like the set dressing looks different than almost any of the other sets that we've seen for like the various great houses. So I, I thought like their set dressing was fascinating. To close things out, Lauren, where does episode two leave us? Sort of in the grander scheme of the Dance of the Dragons. We know that Corliss has now, is now recruiting Damon to his cause to fight in the Stepstones and fight the Crab Feeder. We know that Viserys and Alicent are newly engaged at this point. What is this episode kind of setting up for us moving forward? I mean, this really does kind of sort of set up the, I mean, obviously the most, most important thing and the thing that's really going to affect the dance is Alicent becoming the queen and, you know, start birthing some babies. So that's obviously, I think, the most important thing. The table is finally truly set for the conflict to come. And with Damon and Corliss, you know, they're kind of in uh, that kind of conflict. It, it might seem like it's a side story, but it is going to come back and affect the sort of main plotline leader. It's like, you better just keep an eye on Damon because he is going to, you think he might be doing certain stuff, but Damon always kind of comes back and causes his own brand of chaos. So... You know, even if the Stepstone stuff, if you're thinking it's like, oh, this isn't like, you know, it, it does have a, a part to play in the future and in the future of like the alliances that we see starting to happen between Rhaenyra and Alicent. So that's what I think so far. But I thought it was like a pretty good second episode. I Hopefully, I think other people will think it as well. I didn't think it was as gruesome outside of the, you know, maggots eating Viserys' septic hand, but we had no 
extremely tragic birth situation going on here. So yeah, I mean, you mentioned Viserys's hand. And that is another kind of fun kind of visual storytelling motif, I guess you would call it just the fact that he cut himself on the Iron Throne. And it was such a mild cut too. like initially, the first time I watched these episodes, I was like, what's going on with his hand? It took me the second time going, Oh, it just it got like infected. I mean, I just don't think this man has a good white count. But <laughs> <it's> like... <laughs> I just love the visual symbology of the fact that he cut himself on the Iron Throne, the symbol of his rule in Westeros. And now he's kind of physically slowly decaying. And in this one scene in particular, yeah, the Iron Throne is basically eating him alive. And this is something that kind of comes up again in Fire and Blood with various Targaryens who just seem to be slightly cursed. People would notice that the Iron Throne would cut them where the ones that were considered strong rulers, this was not something like, I don't think Jaehaerys ever got, you know, didn't have this issue, or maybe he just had a stronger white self count. I don't know. But for the rulers that aren't uh, strong in the Targaryen line, the Iron Throne sort of becomes a weapon in itself against them. So I think that that's kind of an, an interesting metaphor. And we see, you know, and the things like Viserys doesn't, he's not like an awful guy. He's just weak and not making the right decisions. Yeah. I mean, we'll have to see how future episodes of season one kind of may or may not play with his kind of physical deterioration as we kind of move forward. But Lauren, thank you so much for joining me again. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, I'll be speaking with Emily Carey, who plays young Allison Hightower to break down that big Allison Viserys reveal in episode two. To start, I remember having so many conversations with some of your castmates on set. And at the time, they were like, oh, you know, the larger scheme of things, the Game of Thrones of it all hasn't really hit us yet. We're still kind of in our production bubble. But now you've obviously been to Comic-Con. You've been to all these premieres. What does this all feel like to you now? Daunting. I mean, we were definitely all blissfully unaware whilst we were shooting. And I'm glad it was that way because I don't think I could have done it if I was feeling what I'm feeling now back then. Comic Con was definitely where it hit, but it only just that was the initial blow. And it's just sort of been bubbling up ever since. I got recognized buying sweet potatoes the other day, which was a moment for me. Literally had a mask and a beanie on. And someone was like, I love House of the Dragon. I was like, huh? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what that show is. I'm not in that. Oh, it was scary. I mean, and then I'd step out of Sainsbury's, which is like our version of Walmart, and on a bus stop is Millie's face. And I'm like, hey, this is really weird. And then I go to check Instagram and all the sponsored ads are all House of the Dragon, House of the Dragon. Switch on my TV and I go to watch something on Sky and it's like House of the Dragon. It's just, it's inescapable at the moment. It's big. You know, when everyone was saying on the show, you know, this is going to be like when Ryan Condal is coming to me and you know, this is going to be huge. If you need me, like you can text me. I'm like, Ryan, I'll be fine. And I'm here. It's like, wow. <laughs> it's, it's scary. It's scary. But no, it's exciting. And I'm so full of pride and, and joy. And I'm loving that the show is actually finally coming out but no it's scary have you texted ryan condal since he kind of offered that to you (laughs) not yet not yet i mean miguel has a little group chat with millie and i in and he's been sort of checking in on us and they're both such just lovely lovely people and i think if i really needed to i could definitely reach out and ryan would give me some 
words of wisdom because that's what he specializes in. But for now, I think I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I spoke with Millie, she said something so sweet. She was like, oh, I think of Emily sort of as my sister and I'm very protective of her. What has this been like to have someone like Millie to kind of lean on through this whole process? Because right, both of you are like the youngest of the principal cast. Yeah. I mean, I was still 17 when we started the job. Like I was, my mom was still chaperoning me to my COVID tests because they legally couldn't put a swab up my nose unless my mom was there so I was I was a baby when we first started which is why I think Millie is so protective of me because she watched me grow up on this job and we clung to each other because it's such a niche experience you know it's it was such a bubble and it was also so secretive we couldn't talk to anyone but I always say Millie is like my cool big sister she just she just gives cool girl big sister energy do you know what I mean anyone who speaks to Millie will get that vibe from her but for me especially she just she gives the best advice and was giving the best advice throughout the entire job on personal problems as well as work problems. And we just, we bonded and we became so incredibly close. But especially in the last few months, our relationship has changed just because the show coming out, it's again, such a niche experience. You can't like turn to a friend or even like an, an actor who you look up to and be like, hey, by the way, do you remember that time when you almost maybe had worldwide fame, but you could have like burnt out and, and your life could have been ruined? Or like maybe the whole of Twitter hated you, but also you it could have been like the biggest career step in your entire life. I remember when that happened what did you do how what was that like you just can't there's no handbook <laughs> there's no youtube tutorial on how to be ready for this and so we're just trying to ride the wave together and hold each other's hands through it because there is literally no one else but also there is no one else that i'd rather do this with millie is just a gem of a human being she's an incredible person and I adore her. You should make the YouTube tutorial. <laughs> for yeah, maybe, this is it. maybe this is my calling. <laughs> well, what was it like working with Millie? Because I remember that you mentioned earlier that you loved sort of the creative input that you could bring to your own character. Are there things about the relationship between Allison and Rainier that both of you kind of just worked out for yourselves? Yeah, 100%. I think we were quite lucky that we didn't have to talk about it too much. It sort of fell into place very naturally throughout the rehearsal period. We also made a point to sort of get to know each other before the characters got to know each other, if that makes sense as well. So we had offset chemistry before we got into the rehearsal room, like we went for drinks and we hung out. And even before the read through, we FaceTimed while she was still in Australia. We just tried to sort of find a bond. And luckily for us, it again happened very naturally and very quickly. But we talked a lot as a creative team so us with claire or as in a room with miguel depending on what episode we were on i just it all it all fell into place you know it just it clicked and i'm so shocked that we never chemistry read you know millie did two zooms and booked it and i was in a room with miguel and ryan and booked it and and we never even met until we got to the read through and we're so lucky because you know my job could have been a lot harder if it was anyone but Millie. But I truly believe that, I mean, when you see her on screen, she was born to play that role. There is no one else that could play young Rhaenyra in the way that Millie does. She's just magnetic on screen. And that comes across when you're actually working opposite her as well. She's so easy to bounce off. And we, our acting styles click. So us as human beings clicked, but on set as well, we work very, very well together. We work in very opposite ways, which in a way works just so, so well. What are those opposite ways? Well, for example, we, we like to be directed in different ways. So Millie loves, she, she loves having like a note to focus on. Whereas I like to do my own thing and 
let things happen naturally and organically. So for example, Miguel, rather than directing me, would often direct my scene partner so that I could just organically work off of whatever the person was giving me. And he'd just know the right thing to provoke, if that makes sense. I love to be directed and I love working with directors, but I get in my head very easily. And on a set like that, it's very easy to get in your head. So if I got too nervous, sometimes I'd get stuck. The best way I can describe it is writer's block, but like in a creative performance sense. And I became acutely conscious of it throughout the job. And so that's just how my brain works. Whereas Millie, she like blacks out. As soon as they say action, she blacks out and she's just completely in it, which I think is fascinating. And I'm also incredibly immersive, but in a very different way, in a sense of my thought process then becomes the character's thought process. Whereas Millie is very strategic when it comes to her performances, which I think is an incredible way of working. So yeah, I guess I guess she could explain her brain and her processes a lot better than I could. But we just work and like different things, but work in tandem so well. Well, I'm I'm so happy that you're joining us for this episode of the podcast specifically because there is a crucial element of Alice in Hightower that we haven't been able to talk about because it's technically a spoiler, which is the fact that she gets engaged to Rhaenyra's father. Yes. I mean, just like knowing how crucial this element is to the whole series that you guys are making has it been difficult for you to kind of not talk about this especially like in press interviews it's been really hard there's so much that i wish i could say but obviously we couldn't give away first of all for the people who haven't read the book that she even gets engaged at all but second of all for even the people who've read the book even like the most diehard fans we couldn't give away how much of the series we're in so we couldn't give away how much of of the story we portray and still can't so there's still more to come that i cannot talk about at all but this is this i'm so glad i can talk about this now this is a big one you know it changes one of the branches of the show if that makes sense it sort of pushes things in in a different direction and for my character is of course a massive turn i mean i think it's I think it's easy to like watch those scenes play out between Allison and Viserys and go, why didn't Allison tell Rhaenyra about it or at least try to? But then, you know, it kind of hits you like, oh, she got an order from her king not to tell Rhaenyra anything. And so she tells her she's kind of going against a direct command from her king. I mean... As the actress playing this character, I'm curious what your thoughts are about all of those pressures and all of those kind of anxieties that are placed on Allison. I remember saying to Miguel early days, it was my first proper scene because my first day on set was a scene that's now been cut from episode one. And so my first proper day was a scene from episode one, the first time I interact with the king, my first like meeting with him. And I remember saying to Miguel, so this whole storyline with Viserys, there are so many different ways I can play it. Am I playing the fear? Is it the duty that she has to get this done for her dad? Or is it the determination of she knows what this could imply? And so she wants she wants that? Or, or like, what, what? And he just went, yes, that. I was like, what? And he was like, all of it. That's what we want. We want all of it. And I think she's she's 14, you know? She has this weird mix of emotions. I think at 14, you can't even process your own emotions, especially in a world like Westeros, where you're huge pressures that should not be placed on 14-year-old girls, whether it be becoming heir to the Iron Throne or whether it be you're going to marry the king. Pressures that should not be placed on young women like that. So we sort of played into the, the confusion because I was confused as an actor, not knowing what Alicent should be feeling and then I also realized that's 
exactly how she's feeling in the sense of she's she's like I should be happy I sh- this should be what I want but is it actually what I want maybe parts of her does want it I think especially with coming episodes I'd like to leave that ambiguous and sort of say the viewer can decide whether how how much they truly believe she wants it or how much she's being forced into because as I said I'm sort of playing the confusion so I hope that reads it was a fun one to delve into I'll be honest going on a tangent very quickly you mentioned a deleted scene for episode one that was your very first scene that you shot on set what what were kind of the specifics of that scene can you say yeah so it was a sort of i say a filler scene i thought it was going to be a filler scene that bearing in mind day one i thought it was going to be a filler scene it was like half a page and no dialogue it was just allison is waiting for rhaenyra to get back after the funeral so i'm just there in my funeral dress in in her bedroom and she comes in they hug and then she sheds a tear that's what it said on paper so i was like Easy day. Nice, easy first day. Filler scene will be fine. Until I got there and I realized there are no filler scenes in this show. Every scene is there for a reason, even though the single cut, if it's written, it's there for to serve a purpose. And nothing is as it seems on paper. I was like, why have we got a whole day to do one scene? That's so weird. Why is this whole show just like one scene a day? And I realized it's because there's so much you can take off of a script. There's, there's so much you can read between the lines and there's so much meat to it that you don't really see on paper. And that's why we have a whole day to develop one scene. So I went in thinking it was like a short a short day. At the end of the day, it had got to the point where Millie and I were both sort of hugging on the floor, crying. Because of course, it's a shared trauma between both of these girls. They're both incredibly emotionally vulnerable at that moment. And so it was, it was a really great way to release my first day nerves because I just got to cry all day. But, um, and it was a great way to bond with Millie on our first proper shooting day. Do you know what I mean? But it just wasn't needed. It was a great tool. I think that day was a great tool because we, we used it and we, and we worked off of that. We needed to find that depth of emotion at some point that we didn't find in the rehearsal room and use it. But it just, it wasn't needed in the, in the final cut. And I trust that from Miguel. Going back to what we were talking about earlier with Allison and Viserys, what was it like working with Patty? Because a lot of those scenes, it's such delicate material. Both these characters are in very different positions of power. How did you guys want to approach those scenes together? Well, first of all, Patty is an absolute gem. He is so funny and so brilliant and so kind and caring, not just as a person, but also as an actor. After every take, he'd be like, you good, kiddo? You'd check in and be like, you happy? I'm like, yeah, I'm happy, Pads. We're good. He's very giving as an actor and as a person. Obviously, as I said, still being 17 when I started the job, I was a little bit nervous when I read the script. So I was like, this is a fully grown man. Of course, this is a very delicate storyline. But Patty made it so easy. And as well as that amazing team, Miguel and Ryan also made it incredibly easy. Having that rehearsal time was so important and so valuable. But again, we kind of just let things happen very naturally. The conversations we had were more about personal things rather than the relationship with one another because if we talk too much about the relation especially in these early episodes we talk too much about the relationship with one another it could become very overworked and too crafted whereas we wanted this sort of unlikely bond to form very naturally and it sort of reflected me and Patty in real life because I wasn't sure how I was going to bond with the guy who's going to be playing or I'm going to be playing his wife I was like I don't really know how to how do I approach this and we ended up bonding over drag race of all things Paddy is a massive drag race fan and so am I. So we'd I'd come into set and and be like, hey Paddy, did you watch the new episode of All Stars? He'd be like, oh my god, yes. Let's talk about it. So that's how we'd start every morning. And yeah, an unlikely friendship formed, and that's exactly what 
I think Alison and Viserys have in the show. It's strange. It's a strange relationship, but they find this emotional vulnerability with one another that I don't think they really find with anyone else. There's a guilt underlying from both sides, especially when it comes to the to the point of marriage, but even in in just the meetings, there's this guilt, this unspoken edge to it, but I think they bring out a softness in one another. And that dynamic was really interesting to play around with in those meetings because there'd be moments of complete softness and, and vulnerability and you think maybe there is a spark between them that's very strange and you can't really tell what the spark is but there's a there's a bond and then they'd hit a wall and that spike would come out and, and it would feel spiky and edgy and uncomfortable again. And it was really interesting to play around with. But again, we didn't talk about it too much. We just sort of tried different things. And I, again, Patty and I work in, in sort of similar ways. And I learned a lot from him and, and how his his methods, because I think I that's what I strive to be. How he works is what I want, how I would like to work and how I see myself working in, in the future. So we work in similar ways in the sense that we both work quite organically. But we didn't talk about it too much. We just got on our feet and, and tried different things and and learned from Miguel and listened to each other and listened to Miguel and as a team crafted something which I think reads very well on screen. Well, you know what I have to ask you about now. Can you use House of the Dragon to get a guest judge role on Drag Race? <laughs> I've asked. We're talking about it. Don't you worry. I'm going to get that. I'm going to make it happen. Honestly, I think I'd just cry the whole time. Like, I think I would just sob the entire time. I grew up on that show. I, I love Drag Race and I love drag as a performance art. I think it's beautiful. And I go to drag shows and drag brunches as often as I can because it just brings me so much joy. Like, it's just, it's so joyful and moving. And if I was a judge on Drag Race, I genuinely would just be in pieces i would be in bits and cry the whole time <laughs> well house of the dragon kind of is like drag i mean do, do you get to wear a wig as allison i mean i didn't until the reshoot because i didn't want to dye my hair ginger again for like three days so i got a wig for the for the reshoots but no it is like drag i remember <laughs> the 20 in episode one paddy in his like big throne was sat we were sat in front of him we got so delirious because the 20 took so long to shoot and it felt like a weird school trip or like a family day out with all of us there at, at one time and the the stunt guys would line up to joust at the other end it'd be these big sweeping wide shots they couldn't really hear what we were saying so the horses would like whinny or whatever and, and then you'd hear from behind us two jousters stand before me are you ready to joust for your life and we're like what is going on it was so funny he was really getting into it and then they said that damon looked like a drag queen because he his helmet in the tawny had this big ponytail thing on it oh it was brilliant it was so it was so funny so no i think it is kind of like drag because the the costuming even for the for the men and the women alike in this show is so intricate and so beautiful and so extravagant very draggy <laughs> Well, now, if for whatever reason, if the discussions fall apart, I think the fans will revolt if you are not on Drag Race. I, I hope so. I just, it's, it, that would be a dream come true, like a life goal ticked off the list. <laughs> Going back to Allison, you do such very specific and subtle work with your performance. For one, who came up with the idea that whenever she is very anxious, that she picks at her nails and bites them until they bleed. Was that you? It was scripted. So I think 
they wanted to have some kind of link between Alicent and physical attributes are so easy to take across. I haven't seen Olivia's episodes, I haven't even read those scripts, but that's something that we were told, is that little things like that, characteristics are quite easy to carry across, especially when we were told that, you know, you don't need to talk about the character between you and not to focus on it too much but no I read it in the script and funnily enough it's something that I do in real life so I was like can we develop this a bit more and I managed to get it added into a couple of extra moments whenever I felt like it was right I'd sort of add in either the bite or I'd say can we throw this in somewhere away from where in moments where it was scripted because as I said it's something that I do in, in real life I could sort of feel it naturally coming on whereas with something like that if it feels too choreographed it can seem really out of place and like it's just there to like oh she's anxious do you know what I mean so there were moments where it was supposed to happen where it would be like instead of it happening there's just like a clock of it but I thought it was so interesting that this was written in because it's not just like a stress tick for her Westeros is a world where people are told to not emote they're not allowed to feel anything at all. And Alicent is a very emotional person. She has a huge amount of feelings. And then you add in that she's a teenage girl as well, that sort of times it by 10. And then you put her in the circumstances that she's put in. And again, it times us by 10 again. The scenes, for example, with the High Towers, I think it's so interesting. Them especially, the scenes with Otto and Alicent, where they're supposed to be saying how much they love each other. Seeing the why do you destroy yourself? She should be saying, good luck, I'm gonna miss you and I love you and I hope you don't die. But instead they argue because that's just what they do because they don't know how to express that they miss each other or that they love each other. It just turns into a fiery argument because they just have feelings and they don't know what to do with them. And so I think with Alison, that's just the way that her feelings seep out. The extent that Alison does it, I think it's almost a form of self-harm, but she doesn't really understand what it is. She's just doing it because she feels she must. And I think that's why that line is so important from Otto. It's not a, you need to stop being anxious. It's a, why do you destroy yourself? She's destroying herself from the inside out. And I think that's that's really interesting. I think I screamed when Reese said that line because I'm like, oh, that's gaslighting. You are gaslighting her. <laughs> gaslighting. But Alice is a girl boss, you know, she bounced back with it. Yeah, I, I just, I love, I love little characterization things like that. And when it's given to I think it's so it's so great that I could then sort of elevate it and do what I wanted to do with it. It was amazing. One last question for you. After watch, uh, well, it also kind of goes back to what we were talking about, just about the specific nuances of the character. And there were a couple of moments in the first episode, not so much the second episode, where I'm like, ooh, it's like Rhaenyra kind of flirting a little bit with Allison. Is there something there? I wasn't sure if that was intentional or if it's just sort of, you know, up to kind of interpretation. For me, as a viewer, if you want to read into it, you can. I think as a viewer, if, if you see it, you see it. If you don't, you don't have to imagine that there's something there if you don't want to. It's definitely something that me and Millie talked about as actors. I think, first of all, for me being a queer woman, I read the undertones. I'm 100%, well, I'm like 90% sure that Ryan Condal was not sat there writing a sapphic drama. But at the same time, I picked up on it just because I wanted to see it. But also something that we talked about, because I brought it into the room. I was like, Millie, how do you feel about this? Claire, how do you feel about this? Because there's chemistry in how I would read it. But I don't know if you want me to play it because I don't know what, what let's talk about it and we talked about it and it's like at 14 especially as young women there's this closeness that you you don't really ever find again I mean for example 14 year old girls are allowed to change in front of each other when the boys aren't and you know you, you go to the bathroom together and and you, you it's just like this tactile closeness and this emotional vulnerability that you share with one another it's almost like having a partner you want to be with that person all the time and there's this all in all 
encapsulating you with with love and you just want you just want to love that person so deeply and you think your best friend of 14 is going to be your best friend for the rest of your life and it does toe the line between platonic and romantic but i also think 14 you don't know what those words mean you don't know what that means you don't know what the feelings mean it's just love that's all it is whether it's friendship or more than that i think it's up to how you want to see it but it was it was talked about for sure and as a viewer i like to read into it because i also think that it makes the demise of the friendship more heartbreaking to watch so i think it's it's up to you how you want to read it but we talked about it i would love if they were a little bit fruity but it's 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 up to you how you how you want to read it it's just a beautiful bond between two young girls let's put it that way well thank you so much emily for uh, joining us today on the podcast it's been a pleasure thank you so much for having me And that's it for this episode of West of Westeros. If you liked what you heard, follow, rate the podcast, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. To keep the conversation going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials, at EW on Twitter, and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag us at at Nick A. Romano and at Morglar. This episode of West of Westeros is hosted by Nick Romano and Lauren Morgan. Produced by Chanel Johnson, Sammy Junio, Nick Romano, and Lauren Morgan. Edited by Michael Classic. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. New episodes of West of Westeros come every Sunday right after the episodes of House of the Dragon air on HBO and stream on HBO Max. Stay tuned. <laughs>